Hey folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are taking a break from our latest sermon series. Enjoy this standalone episode. Thanks for listening. Okay, now I'm gonna be honest with you. We've had a lot going on in the James household, a lot of poorly scheduled events all coalescing into a very hectic nine-week stretch or so. Tomorrow I have uh, given my A-OK to ride down the road to not Washington, D.C., but Arlington, Virginia. There were some D.C. natives that got pretty ticked when I likened Arlington, Virginia to D.C. They're, they're separate. Apparently, they're very separate. Uh, so I, what I'll be doing is I'll be lecturing at a seminary there where I've done some work, and the topic they gave me was the story of the Exodus, colon, justice as faithfulness. It's always good when you get a, a full title from which to think about your, your upcoming presentation. Um, but instead of preparing that for tomorrow and some stuff from John and then some stuff for Wednesday, what I decided to do was to, as the proverb says, hit two birds with one stone tonight. So you'll be getting a 90-minute lecture on justice in the Exodus. Please open your Bibles. No, you'll be getting a very... Uh, light version of some of the things I'm talking about tomorrow, hopefully some more uh, pastoral responses, although even in my teaching, I don't like to separate those two uh, very far from one another. If you're talking about the Bible and it has no impact in your everyday life, then really what are you doing? Uh, so tonight, I, I want to go back to some of the material that we've already looked at as a church. Uh, if you guys remember, we did 10 weeks or so in the book of Exodus in the year of 2017, it was a bit of time ago, and looking around the room, I know a handful of you were there for that. Uh, but tonight, I wanna kind of revisit some of that, and I imagine that this will be kind of a loose collection of thoughts regarding one of the most important stories in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. This is a passage that, that the ancient Jewish interpreters kept coming back to because they could find their life within it. They found their source of hope in it because of what God did for the people of Israel in this story. Uh, one commentator, Terence Fretheim, says, for centuries the exodus, not just the book, but the actual story of Israel being in bondage and slavery and servitude uh, within an Egyptian regime, the story of their freedom and their movement from slavery and bondage into life and hope for centuries, that story has functioned as a paradigm, especially for those who have been victimized by oppressive systems of one kind or another. Now, we can pause here for a moment, and before we go on to assume that we are the oppressed ones, and I know when it comes down to uh, Christmas time and you go to Target and the cashier says, happy holidays to you, and you feel that an affront has just taken place because they've taken Christ out of Christmas. <laughs> and the oppression that you feel there, I know that that's very real. And we can set up a support group for you uh, to, get, to get through that. We usually are more uh, 
in line to be um, the Egyptians in this story, the oppressive power that has the privilege over subjugated peoples, whether we are aware of it or not in how we participate in those structures. Uh, But this story, it has been a lifeline, a paradigm for people that are victimized by oppressive systems of one kind or another, and God becomes the champion of the poor and those pushed to the margins of life. God is one who liberates them from the pharaohs of this world. You see what Fretheim has just done. He's taken this ancient story and he's then brought it into the current day and said that there are pharaohs right here and right now that people feel that God must free them from. That doesn't always have a lot of play with us and where we are, even though we do, I I kind of pushed back at, at it a little bit, but we do feel as though we are the oppressed people group from time to time, rightly or wrongly. But here, what this story is about is saying that God is the champion of the poor and the marginalized. And we can learn something about God and God's character in this story as it plays out. And as I've thought about this this text and this, uh, again, this story of Israel within Egypt and suffering and servitude and bondage and being released from that, we see justice as the faithfulness of God, the primary actor in this story, who goes about the work of freeing the people In fact, God is at great pains, or the the editor and the author of the book of Exodus, is at great pains to make it clear that God is the one that's doing the work here. And we see that justice is the faithfulness of God and how that takes place in the story. And after the Exodus takes place, justice becomes the faithful remembrance of God's activity. All throughout the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, the Exodus story is held on to the people as that lifeline as that thing that you look back to and say, like you did then, God, do it again now. The history of the Israelite people in the Old Testament is not just one time of uh, slavery and servitude. It happens again and it happens again and they have these other oppressive powers that, that destroy them or take over and they look back to this climactic moment in their history and say, remember how you freed us then, free us now. And there's this this bit where we have the faithful remembrance, the storytelling of God's people where they can look back and say, this happened back then and we're calling it to happen again here and now. And then there's also this bit where it's justice as the faithfulness of God's people. These are the three prongs of this story, at least as it seems to me, God is the primary actor that's doing the work, that's freeing the people. The people then begin to remember this activity as the paradigm of God's redemptive work, but God also uses people in the midst of that story to be agents of justice and change within the moment. Now, If you've been listening to me over the last few months, I don't know how long it's been, but I've been camping out here, calling us to task to be the people to do the work, saying things like we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world as we see people who are oppressed, the people who are marginalized, the people who are pushed off to the brink, and we can be agents of redemption and reconciliation for them in whatever way God allows us to play that role, in whatever way our sphere of influence allows us to stand up, to stick our neck out for our brother and sister, 
and to be someone who cares about fulfilling this call to live out God's justice in the world. And I'm gonna do that tonight again. I mean, why mess with a good thing? You know what I'm saying? We're gonna keep talking about this, but I don't wanna do it in a way that is guilt-inducing, and I also don't wanna do uh, a disjustice to God as the primary actor in this story. So I wanna take these three points and just kinda walk us through. I don't imagine that we're gonna have a spend a lot of time in this tonight. So think of this as more a reflection for us to to leave and hopefully be inspired by. But in this story, we have God as the primary actor who is leading the people to liberation and freedom. In Exodus chapter two, this is probably one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament because it, it embodies who God is. We have this, this moment where uh, the Hebrew people are being oppressed. They are having their um, tasks just overburdened upon them. And then in chapter two, verse 23, it says, and it happened when a long time had passed that the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned from the bondage and cried out. Note, it doesn't say that they cried out to God. There's been an amount of time that has lapsed here between Israel going to Egypt, which they originally did in order to um, have relief from famine. And they're in a situation where the leadership knows one of their own, knows Joseph, knows part of uh, the Israelite people, and things were going well with them. But then that leader dies and a new leader rises up who doesn't know Joseph, the text says, and things get bad for the Israelite people. And we don't know how this faith commitment of Israel is held in those in-between years leading up until this moment. And the only thing the text says is that they, they cry out because of the bondage that is happening to them. Now, it goes on to say that their plea from bondage went up uh, from God. This is Robert Alter's translation here. In other words, God is hearing this cry, hearing this plea, hearing this groan uh, without any sort of understanding of what those words may or may not have entailed. And God hears their moaning and God remembers his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, all the promises to these people where God says, I will be with you. I will take you into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. You will be my people and I will be your God. God hears their moaning, hears their cry, hears their plea. He remembers the covenant and God saw the Israelites and God knew. This is a great translation of the Hebrew. It just says that God saw the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, literally, which just means the people, and God knew. What is it that you think God knew in this text? Let's hear from you. What is it that God is knowing? They're suffering. Anybody want to add to that, take away from it? Okay, we're all on board there. Lack of freedom, bondage. Uh, being overworked, perhaps. He might also know because he's remembering the covenant. He knows the promises that he once had for these people. What's important, according to Walter Brueggemann, for our purposes, is that Yahweh is the subject of all of these verbs. He's hearing, he's remembering, he's seeing, and he's knowing what must take place in order for these people to experience everything that they need for God's promises to hold true. 
These verbs happen throughout the book of, of Exodus where the Lord brings out the people, he delivers the people, he redeems the people, he saves the people, he ransoms the people, he brings up the people. God is the primary actor in this story to bring about the redemption of his people that have felt the silence over time where God is not with them. God is not delivering them. God is not taking them out of slavery and servitude. There's been this moment of silence that perhaps you might be able to uh, have some sort of connection with where you feel this silence. Now, as I preached this passage before, I would encourage you that God does hear, that God does remember, that God does see, and that God does know, but there's moments when it feels like God is checked out and gone. And in the book of Exodus, it's not until late in chapter two when things begin to turn for God's people. The Exodus then, it becomes this paradigm of God's activity. It becomes the thing that God can do if we call God to do it, for God to step in, to intervene, to bring about redemption and reconciliation and hope in moments where we feel hopeless. We have this one branch of thought within Exodus where God becomes the one who is tired of not doing and steps into the story to redeem his people. And this occasions the folks to tell the story over and over. It occasions the faithful remembrance of the people to tell of what God has done in distant context, way after the fact of this deliverance. Uh, Walter Brueggemann again, again says, when Israel began telling of its subsequent history about what happened in other times and places and circumstances, Israel characteristically retold all of its experience through the powerful definitional lens of the Exodus memory. It becomes the story. Some people have uh, uh, likened this to within the Christian faith. Our story is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And within the Jewish story, that is centered around the Exodus and God's deliverance there. It becomes the lens through which they view everything. That is, Brueggemann says, Yahweh did not enact these powerful, transformative, liberating verbs only once at the outset of Israel's life in the world. Rather, Yahweh repeatedly, characteristically, and reliably enacted like transformations in like circumstances throughout Israel's normative memory. That's fancy talk for people can look back to this story and say, remember the time when we were in bondage and you brought us out. Do it again. The God of the Exodus in their mindset becomes the God of the Exoduses, something that happens over and over to some degree, perhaps to a smaller degree for individuals and for communities where the God of the Exodus begins to mount smaller exoduses in the lives of his people regarding whatever it is that they feel that is oppressing them in that moment. This comes up throughout the Old Testament in one of the climactic verses in Isaiah chapter 55 where the author says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces? Was it not you who pierced the dragon? Owen's face was this, huh? 
which I think summarizes most of your faces here. This is mythical language that the poet is using to remember stories of old. Because God didn't just split the sea. He didn't just part the Red Sea in this story. No, God tamed all of the forces of chaos. God demonstrated God's control over the created world. And this was like, for them, it was God slaying sea monsters and dragons and putting them in their proper place because God is the one who is in control of all created things. And the author in Isaiah is saying, was it not you who did these things? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? That term there is the to home, say to home. It's got creation overtones because in the beginning, God was hovering over the to home and God was placing it in its proper place and saying, chaos, you have nothing on me. For an ancient reader, this was like, whoa because they were so intensely afraid of the Tahome, the deep, these mythical sea creatures and sea monsters. Those were the things that, that brought on fear. But God has demonstrated God's control over this. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Was it not you who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Was it not you? This is in a context that if you take these stories for, for what they are, nobody knows when the Exodus happened. Some people say 1400-ish, some people say 1200-ish. Both of those dates have some problems. There's a lot of problems with a lack of archeological evidence. There's a lot of problems with no extra biblical texts to affirm that these things actually happened in history. There's lots of stuff going on, but let's just say that it took place around 1200 BC, okay? Nod your head. Second Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 51, is happening around 550-ish. This is after Judah has been destroyed by Babylon. And they find themselves in this moment where God seems silent and they say, remember what you did back then for your people, for us, for Israel. Don't leave us alone deliver us, bring us into freedom again. They're taking this story that is meaningful in the ancient past and then they're applying it right here and right now for them in their moment. Was it not you? And if it was, do it again. Do that work for this people again here and now. Now this, the Exodus, this story, this idea of it having uh, multiple fulfillments over and over, the God of the Exodus becomes the God of the Exoduses, it's shown itself in theological literature. It shows itself in this one move towards what is called liberation theology, where people not like us actually are living in oppression, systematic and governmental and political oppression amongst dictators. They have zero say in what is going on and they look back to the story of the Exodus and say, that is describing 
us. We are Israel in servitude and subjugation to the Egyptian authorities and political powers, and we, like them in the past, need God to show up and do something great here and now. And in liberation theology, they began to take the story of the Exodus and begin to apply it over and over. This is James Cone. James Cone is probably the preeminent black theologian of the 20th and to 21st century. He's written some really challenging and convicting works. Probably his most formative is Black Theology of Liberation. One of his more current works, uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, we actually did a, a group study on that uh, maybe a year and a half or so ago. It will kick your butt because of the lens through which he is reading as someone who is oppressed within our cultural context, taking the lens of the Exodus and applying it in his moment to say things like Christian theology is a theology of liberation. Pause there because I imagine, I'm looking around the room and I imagine most of you had similar experiences to me growing up. When I went to Sunday school, we didn't talk about Christian theology and Jesus being liberating. We talked about, you are a dirty, disgusting sinner, and if you don't pray this prayer, you're gonna burn in hell for all of eternity. Can somebody <laughs> affirm, affirm that reading of the scripture here? We didn't talk about the cosmic scope of what Jesus was doing. We talked about the individual scope of what Jesus was doing so that you don't go to hell because our context was very different. The context with which Miss Pat came to bring me the gospel as a child was very different because Miss Pat was not underneath of the subjugating oppressive powers that be feeling the systemic weight of uh, oppression. Therefore, liberation was not important for Miss Pat, nor was it important for me because I was the son of a pig farmer in Laurel, Delaware who did okay. <laughs> We just needed to make sure that I wasn't looking at porn and touching people inappropriately, okay? That's what that is about, and probably not as a five-year-old, but they're laying the groundwork for that so that when you're 13, they can take you aside and say, listen, this is what Christianity is really all about. Don't touch that, don't look at that, don't do that. That's not liberation. We'll leave that, we'll leave the human sexuality piece off to the side for a moment, but we're not talking about Christian theology as liberating because that's not our context most of the time. But for James Cone, who's writing this work uh, a, a year after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, this is a context that is much different for him. So he says Christian theology is a theology of liberation. There can be no Christian theology that is not identified unreservedly with those who are humiliated and abused. In fact, theology ceases to be a theology of the gospel when it fails to arise out of the community of the oppressed. We weren't a community of the oppressed at that time, so we failed to see the importance of this. We understood and we knew the story of the Exodus because it was a cool story. And we saw the good things that God did, but we didn't make the tie from God delivering his people to justice and liberation. We made the tie of God's really powerful and that's neat. 
and it didn't get much farther than that. Now, I don't wanna sit here and, and bust on Miss Pat and bust on my upbringing and bust on most of your upbringing either. This is the moment, though, when you get to see that it's larger than what we may have been given at one point in our Christian faith journey, and hopefully that adds texture and that adds importance. If you just sit with this, like Lent is all about fasting, right? It's about putting some things aside and picking some things up, and if you just sit with this line for a week or so, whoo, theology ceases to be a theology of the gospel when it fails to arise out of the community of the oppressed. He continues, by delivering Israel from Egyptian bondage and inaugurating the covenant, beginning the covenant on the basis of that historical event. He's rooting things in this Exodus moment. Because that's happening, God is revealed as the God of the oppressed. God is involved in their history, the history of the people of Israel, and God is liberating them from human bondage. There is context to who God is that many of us might miss because it's not part of our story or our necessity as we approach the Bible. I can't stress this to you enough that whatever it is that you bring with you to the reading of the text, it will color how you read the text. And so for people like James Cone and people in uh, Latin America who were suffering under dictatorships in the 50s and 60s, like this was important for them to see God as redeeming them in the midst of their moment and how that could give them hope. And it's something that we should, I, pro I, th I think, hold on to to add texture and color to how we're understanding the work of Jesus. God is revealed as the God of the oppressed which also does beg the question. And Cohn is not talking about the spiritually oppressed. He's not talking about the people that have um, baggage with them, like sin baggage. He's talking about people who are actually oppressed systemically, politically, uh, sociologically, like they're suffering in some way as a people group. If God is the God of the oppressed, what does it mean for those of us who are not oppressed? How do we bring those things together? Which is why, friends, I cannot escape this third prong of our exploration of, of justice here because it forces us to think through what it is that we do and how we contribute either to oppression or liberation. Even where you are right now, I hope this doesn't sound like, our context is so politically polarized right now, that some of this stuff can sound so fruity and so, I'm gonna say a word, it starts with a D, democratic, that I don't want to scare you guys off here for a moment. But when our actions either contribute to oppression or liberation, that's important for us to consider. And this, this third prong of the story of justice as the faithfulness of God's people where they begin to do the work is where I want us to, to end up tonight. And I said that it wouldn't take long, but I lied. I got excited. So here we are anyway. <laughs> this bit won't take long, but if you just add up all the three chunks, Kelly, I'm sorry. All right, justice as the faithfulness of God's people. 
A story in Exodus chapter one towards the end here, it says that a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph. Remember, they had this uh, good relationship with the ruler because the ruler knew who Joseph was. In fact, Joseph had helped the ruler through some hard times and that helped to kind of buffer the relationship between this rogue foreign group of people, Israel, in a foreign territory, Egypt. But the king was cool with that because he knew their head honcho, Joseph. But when a new king arose who didn't know Joseph, things got really hairy. He says to his people, look, this people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and vaster than we. They begin to take a lot of this creation language from Genesis 1. Uh, Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply, this Genesis word here, be fruitful and multiply, that was happening. And the Egyptians did not want that to happen. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply, and then should war occur, they will actually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. This is a problem. There's a lot of Israelites on our, on our, on our turf, and we must eradicate them so that they don't become our enemies and overthrow us. Most of you know where this story is going. There's a couple of ways in which the ruler attempted to alleviate this problem. They set over them forced labor foremen so as to abuse them with their burdens and they built store cities for Pharaoh, Pithom and Ramses. Nobody knows where these are. And as they abused them, so they did multiply and so did they spread and they came to loathe the Israelites. When all you have to do during the day is work, then the only thing that you can find to bring yourself any sort of pleasure in the evening is to make babies. And that seems to be what was happening. I just, that was just attempts at humor, throwing them out there. Thank you. Uh, this is, they're, they're still taking on the, the forced labor and the burdens of the people. They're still making babies. They're still multiplying. It's not happening. And the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor. They're, they're putting even more on them. And they made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar and bricks and every work in the field, all their crushing work that they performed. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, this is important, and this is where I wanna hang out for the next few minutes. One of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Pua. This is weird. Who doesn't have a name in this passage? Let me put it this way. What is the king of Egypt's name? We don't know. Some people like to do like their historical work and try to assume who it might be, especially if the store cities of Pithom and Ramses are being built, then perhaps it's this person. But in the story, the king is unnamed, which is weird. And for an ancient reader, you wanna wave your hand and throw a flag. But we've got two Hebrew midwives that are named in the Bible, which is pretty patriarchal. This is strange. Shifra and Pua. And he said, when you deliver the Hebrew women and look on the birth stool, uh, I talked to Sarah Morrow today, who is our resident midwife extraordinaire. Uh, Biblical scholars don't know what this birth stool is. Literally, the term is a double stone. So she said, uh, in the ancient world and in times past and even still now, uh, kneeling was a preferable birthing position. Would you like me to demonstrate? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We're getting in the phantom chair here. And the birthing stones, of which there are two, she said could provide grip for the feet 
of the women, and she said, think of it like a squatty potty. <laughs> so the birthing stone, the birthing stool, where they were delivering, says when you deliver the Hebrew women and look on the birth stool, another weird part of this here is, you've got two Hebrew midwives who are in charge of all the births of all of these people, which according to the text, number 2.5 million? It's just things that make you go, hmm? You know, as CNC Music Factory once taught us so well. <clears throat> when you deliver the Hebrew women and look on the birth stool, if it's a boy, you shall put him to death, and if it's a girl, she may live. And the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them. Now, we import a lot in this word God. We don't know, I, I wanna push this a little bit, we don't know which God, who's God, where God, because there's, there's not a whole lot of stuff happening here, but there's something going on where they're fearing God and they did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them and they let the children live. As we keep going, this is gonna be even more uh, thrilling as to how and why they choose to do this. And the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why did you do this thing and let the children live? We don't know how he found out other than the fact that maybe there were some boys being born. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, for not like the Egyptian women are the Hebrew women, for they are hardy. It's a strange term. Probably not one that most women would think that's an apt description and a favorable description. <laughs> Uh, and nobody really knows what this term means, uh, but some would conclude that it has to do with the speed and the vigorousness with which the women on the birthing stones are doing what the good Lord is allowing them to do, and before the midwife comes to them, they give birth without them knowing, which is clearly a lie, and look what God does in response to the action and the lie. God made it go well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very vast. And inasmuch as the midwives feared God, he made households for them. Some people would say that the midwives may not have had their own households, but now they are being blessed with their own households, with um, giving birth and uh, allowing them to have these ties uh, Gosh, this, is, this might take 30 seconds. In the ancient world, a single woman was vulnerable. Children was not just a blessing, it was a lifeline. And to uh, have these midwives being able to root themselves within a family was important for their longevity and for their security in the future. He made households for them, and Pharaoh charged his whole people, saying, every boy that is born you shall fling into the Nile, and every girl you shall let live. The word of God for the people of God. God. There's some stuff that I mixed in there. What this story is, we've got a couple of ladies <laughs> who are professionals with what they're doing. Some of these discussions as to what a midwife can do and does do in the ancient world, it's really cool. They weren't just people that showed up, they were people that were knowledgeable. Some people also put them in the world of, of magic as well, because in the ancient world, there's a lot of things that we don't know and things uh, where they're, they're rooting this in the way that they can comfort the people and the way that they can have potentially incantations and prayers for the people. But either way, these are professional women saying no to the empire who is demanding something from them. What's even more is, um, 
according to Carol Myers, Moses may be the first major Israelite figure in the book of Exodus, but the first individual Israelites mentioned are two women. These are the first people with names in the entire book, Shifra and Pua, two female members of an outcast group. They are conferred the dignity of names in contrast to the nameless, powerful king. Now, where does this bit about the outcast group come from? In a verse in, uh, in the later parts of chapter one, it says, and the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when we read that, we read that as an ethnic description. We read that as a description of a people group, Hebrews, Israelites. But in the ancient world, most scholars would say that this word here, Ivri, it means more uh, of, a, of a social group. It's not just the ethnicity of the people. Uh, in fact, Walter Brueggemann says this term with its cognates known all over the ancient Near East, it refers to any group of marginal people who have no social standing, they own no land, and who endlessly disrupt ordered society. They are low-class folks who are feared, excluded, and despised, and these are the people that are saying no to the empire. The people who have no standing these are not the people who are running for office, so to speak. These are not the people who go to the balls and the fundraisers, so to speak. These are not the people on the upper crust of society. So we have just a couple of these professional women with no political or social power whatsoever saying no to the empire. With their life on the line, they are enacting justice and advocating for the marginalized at the risk of their own safety and security. Why? Because it's right. Why? Because midwives don't kill babies. Why? Because women look after women. Why? Because these people who maybe didn't have families wanted families to prosper within this people group with no political and social power the lowest of the low, looking out for the lowest of the low and saying no to the king of the land. And these are the first two named people in the book of Exodus. And these are women <coughs> in the ancient world. The first of 12 women, actually, within the earlier chapters of Exodus, where the whole story it takes its, its roots from. Which leads me to this. Now we got our three prongs, remember? You got God, who's the main actor in the story. God's doing the work. God is delivering the people. If you look at the plagues, it's God versus Pharaoh. If you've got, look at the, the Red Sea crossing, it's God uh, uh, doing all of the work. All Israel has to do is to be silent, to shut up, more or less, and watch God uh, demonstrate God's own power. And you've got the people telling the stories about that, but laced within this massive story of freedom and liberation, you've got two lowly midwives who stand up for what is right at the risk of their lives and the question is begged, what about us? Justice as faithfulness. There's a tendency, and perhaps there's a tendency in my own preaching, where I leave this in a big guilt trip on you. What about you? You guys stink. I gotta go eat some bread. Like, that's not what I want to happen here. As Christians, 
we don't just look back to the story of deliverance in the Exodus. We also see another social outcast who stuck his neck out for other social outcasts to bring them into the family of God when nobody expected them to be included. Somewhere along the way, maybe because we have fancy clothes from J. Crew, we decided that we deserve to be here. But the gospel says that we are surprise participants at the table. I don't mean that we, uh, I, I don't mean to give us the, the image that we are unworthy and that we are only known by our sin and our faults. I don't mean to get that. I mean in the story of the Bible, where Jesus came to redeem the covenant people of God, we weren't written into that story yet. But Jesus, like the midwives, says no to the empire and pulls up a chair for people who don't belong, and we get to sit down at this meal that is saturated in grace and love and forgiveness. And hopefully that inspires us to become people who look for those on the margins and the outskirts and pull up a chair for them too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. If you would like more information about the Restoration Project, we encourage you to visit our website at RestoreSBY.org or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash RestoreSBY, or spend some more time listening to past episodes of the podcast. If you have appreciated this or other episodes and would like to support the work that we do in Salisbury, Maryland, we invite you to review the podcast on iTunes. We aren't sure how it works, but we think people will be able to find us more easily online if you give us five stars. If that's not enough and you want to send us some money too, I mean, who are we to stand in the way? You can find ways to partner with us at give.restoresby.org.